There are two Sermon on the Mount passages in the Bible. One is in Luke and this one's from Matthew. And I will be reading from the 13th through the 16th verses of chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says to the disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, let me come clean on the sermon title. Two cheers for enthusiasm. I stole this title from a sermon I heard about 30 years ago from a preacher in Atlanta, Buddy Ennis, who was at Central Presbyterian Church. His sermon was Two Cheers for Evangelism. And I thought in this case that title fit so well that I would use it again. It begs the question though, uh, why not three cheers for enthusiasm? Just two? The word comes from the Greek word enthusiasmos, which means divine inspiration. So why not three cheers for that? But then it in more detail says it can also mean being possessed by a god that could be a capital G God or a little G God. And even more particularly, it means to be wrapped or caught up in ecstasy. This morning I want us to to be careful about being caught or wrapped up in ecstasy. Turns out when it comes to enthusiasm, a little goes a long way, like salt or light. Jesus is aware that too much in theos, enthusiasm, becomes idolatry and it needs to be tempered. I face all the time when I do premarital counseling, couples come into the office and they are very enthusiastic. Well, they need to be. If they're not, we need to talk about that. But. <laughs> They're, they're very enthusiastic about their wedding and being married together, uh, young couples, and, and uh, although less these days because couples now either tend to live with each other or know each other for four or five years, so some of that enthusiasm may have waned. But, but in a general sense, they come and they're very enthusiastic about their life together, and, and I don't want to tamper that, but I do want them to begin questioning or at least thinking about, you know what, uh, life may not, their marriage may not keep the same hot level of being inflamed as it is now. And so after the, the first year, it's like, everything's great. I try to help them see, and it, wonderful. I can't tell you how much it's, it is, how wonderful it is. And the second year, it's kind of like, ooh, uh, he still leaves the, the, the lid up in the middle of the night. Uh, he still leaves the towel on the floor and doesn't pick it up and he doesn't take the garbage out like he's supposed to. Uh, 
she snores. I don't mean to be sexist. This could work both ways. Um, she snores. Uh, she can't really cook very well. Uh, and she's always mad when I play too much golf. Uh, you know, I don't know about this. Life's hard in this marriage two years later. Three years, hopefully, you come to see the reality of the relationship and, and what it brings and doesn't bring. Then you settle in to, instead of a inflamed, enthusiastic relationship, a slow heat of marriage and love and responsibility and conviction. It's the slow heat that goes a long way. You can't keep the flame high forever. When the, when the hard hand of reality rubs off the luster of rubs the luster off the doorknob of our community and our enthusiasm, our nuptials or our commitments, that's when the real work starts. Nations fall into this all the time. How many times have we seen peoples being rounded up to march off to war in a very enthusiastic way with all of the flags flying and the bands playing and the soldiers, their backs up and they're saluting and everybody's gung-ho, go, 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 only to come back months or a year or years later wounded on the inside and the out. Nita and I went to the Coast Guard Museum yesterday, the World War II Museum, Great museum, by the way. I'm so uh, proud of what this community uh, did during World War II, and that museum is a, a great opportunity to see that. And, but it started out with sort of the rise of, of Hitler and Nazism. I mean, it started early, and there are pictures of the Hitler youth so enthusiastic. You know what I mean? Perfectly in lockstep. Faces raised up with like, like rapt ecstasy for this evil, evil presence. We can be enthusiastic about a lot of things, not just good things. And then there's a picture of hundreds of thousands of people, it seemed, at Nuremberg lined up perfectly in rectangles as you look out from behind Hitler as he's giving his speech. A country so full of enthusiasm based on the Third Reich theory that they are an Aryan nation blessed by God and everybody else, especially Jews, need to be exterminated. They were real enthusiastic about that. We need to be careful about our enthusiasm. I was I was about a year ago introduced to the owners of a plantation called the Burge Plantation outside of Atlanta. It was a plantation in the, in the 19th century in Civil War times. It's now a, a hunting and a shooting club. And the owners gave me a, a booklet of the history of the plantation and in it was a diary from the matron during the Civil War. Her name was Dolly Burge and in her diary she wrote, some of what she wrote was this. It was after Appomattox. Our leaders, to whom the people looked to for wisdom, led us into this 
perhaps the greatest error of the age. We will not have this man rule over us, was their enthusiastic cry. Men's pockets were always appealed to and appealed to constantly so that an antagonistic enthusiasm was excited which it has been impossible to dampen. They did not believe that the North would fight. Said Robert Tomes, I will drink every drop of blood that will, we will shed. O oh, blinded men, she writes, rivers deep and strong have been shed. And where are we now? A ruined, subjugated people. What will be our future? This has been a month never to be forgotten. Two armies have surrendered. The President of the United States has been assassinated. Richmond evacuated. The month of May is full of stories of Confederate soldiers bitterly returning to their homes and of the apprehension of the Yankee troops encamped in the neighborhood. Tragically, history is full of these stories. Overly enthusiastic men and women losing control to their passions and hatred in the name of God. One as recently as January the 6th, 2021. We need to be careful about what fires our enthusiasm. The Bible knows this, so did Jesus. In Elijah, Elijah is meeting 400 prophets of Baal in a duel to see who can, who can get the altar lit by either the Baal God or Elijah's Yahweh God. One prophet against 400 other prophets. And so Elijah says, y'all go first. And, and, and so they put the bull on the altar and they, and they dance and they sing and they chant and they build up this enthusiastic sweat and nothing happens. And Elijah goads them, dance harder. You're not dancing hard enough. Sing louder. You might be able to wake God up. You're God up. Maybe, maybe Baal's just taking a nap. Do. And after about seven or eight hours of this, they're exhausted and collapsed. And then Elijah, it's his turn. And he says, utters one prayer. And then the lightning bolt comes down. Elijah had dampened the whole altar, just poured gallons of water on it just to prove his point. The lightning bolt comes down and ignites the fire of, of sacrifice. It wasn't enthusiasm that did that. It was the power of God. Enthusiasm is too often our own concoction. In theos is the inspiration of God. We need to be careful which one we follow. Jesus knew that the Bible said there was a story in Leviticus, weird little story about, about um, uh, Abihu and Nadab, they were Moses' brother Aaron's boys, and, and they were priests. And uh, when they were building the tabernacle, and if you read it, they got all these details about how big the, the altar has to be and how many cubits, and every little, every little liturgical piece of it is clearly stated. I mean, verses and verses and verses about how precise and ordered and, and, and how it needs to be followed. And, and the first tabernacle was where the presence of God was going to come to dwell and they were going to build this fire of the presence and they were, and they were waiting for it. But, 
but the, the boys, the priests, Abihu and Nadab decided, you know, they were gonna, they were gonna help this process along. So over enthusiastically, they took out their censers and put some incense on it and they reached down to ignite the fire for fear that God couldn't do it. And at that point, the whole fire exploded and burned them to death. You don't mess with the liturgy and the order. Because when you do, it's like dealing with a nuclear power plant. It could go any second. That's why we have such a sense of order in worship. Why we have our worship bulletin, which is called the order of worship. Why This is so Presbyterian, I love it. Why Presbyterians like to do things decently and in order. Why we, why we try to be moderate and we don't trust too much enthusiasm. I mean, today with the choir, I got to tell you, that's as much choral enthusiasm as I've ever seen in a Presbyterian church. And I love it, by the way. Don't get me wrong. Just don't start dancing down the aisles. Jesus knew this, so he's surrounded by all the crowds. I mean, he'd healed everybody. It says he healed everybody of every disease, and they were coming from everywhere from everywhere, and there's all of a sudden this huge crowd, it's like a mob, and Jesus is with his disciples, the first four of them, and so he says, let's climb up the mountain. Same mountain, symbolically, that Moses climbed up when he went up to face the fiery presence of God, because the fire on the, on the mountain had to stay there, and Moses knew it, rather if it came down, it would, it would take everybody out, so Moses comes down off the mountain with a fire on his face, remember his face lit up, and he had to put a, put a napkin over it, so well, Jesus goes up the mountain like Moses and sits down with his disciples, not to teach the crowds. They're like, they're raging down there. They want more of Jesus' good stuff, but to teach them to be careful about this. I mean, the qualities of the Beatitudes, which is what he gives them. Listen to them. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted. Those are hardly enthusiastic synonyms. They are subdued. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. I mean, what's wrong with that? We all need salt. We're, we die without salt. The ocean is, is so much salt. In fact, our own, our own System is so much salt, exactly the same salt as in the ocean. Salt flavors food, it preserves food, it serves a purpose. But when it becomes the purpose itself, if you start eating too much salt, there go your kidneys, there goes your blood pressure, there goes your body. A little salt goes a long way. You are the, you are the light of the world. And he's talking about, in those days they had this little clay lamp that was pottery and they'd pour oil in it and out the little spigot would, you'd light it in the little flame. That was their candle light. You are the light of the world. Oh, hide it under a bushel. Put it on a stand and let it light the whole house. Usually one room houses. And that light goes a long way. If you all of a sudden wanted to engage that light, to become more enthusiastic? Well, just throw the oil down on the ground and throw a match on top of that. That's not a good thing. 
You are the light of the world, Jesus says, which is as much a way to shine your light, but also to contain it. Because it's way more powerful when it gets out of control than we know. And what I think Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples for the time when the crowds would turn and say crucify. And he's preparing them for the time when their enthusiastic following of Jesus would wane after his crucifixion. They're preparing them for the down times and us, for the inevitability of hardship, for being a disciple through discipline, for when our fire of faith has been dampened by the hurts and losses in life, the storms. He's, he's preparing us for the time when we are only able to stand on the power of the Holy Spirit to inspire us, which can blow as much as a tornado or a hurricane, or not at all, because it's free to blow as it will. Either way, we still stand on it to be inspired and enthused by it, a power outside of us that brings us to be and become what God created, a light to the world and salt to the earth. So two cheers, two cheers for enthusiasm. Remember this, by the way, when your next pastor joins you, your next called pastor, whenever that will be, remember this. First year, blind enthusiasm. <laughs> Second year, oh, well, you know, he does some things or she does some things I'm not sure I agree with or like. Third year, your light for your next pastor will be as important as your next pastor's light for you. And when those two things come together, and you don't have to share the same light, each one of you in your own way, your own light, when those two things come together, then you've illumined not only this church, but you've served as the body of Christ and the light in the world. Remember that as you go through this process when he or she comes. And finally, we are invited to this table, not that so you have to sit down and eat the whole thing, but one piece of bread is enough. One intinction dip is enough. It's enough to enthuse us again with the very presence and body of Jesus Christ to feed us, to keep us inspired.